56 years, I mean 53 years in 56 hymn collections. He thought in terms of lyric poetry. Charles Wesley was the younger brother to John Wesley, the great founder of the Methodist movement, which became the Methodist Church. Charles, like his older brother, had been tutored at home and then had gone to a prep school and then to Oxford. And at Oxford, he had completed a master's degree. And in his nine years at Oxford, he basically made his living tutoring Latin. In 1735, he was ordained to the ministry in the Church of England, and along with his older brother John, went to the colony of Georgia to work with Governor James Oglethorpe. And if you've ever lived in Georgia, you're familiar with Oglethorpe. I lived in Georgia for a few years, and everything there is named after the good governor. Charles was the secretary and chaplain one of the chaplains, John was the main chaplain to the governor of that colony. He had a tough few years there, or a couple of years there, and then returned back to England. And on the voyage and the transition and in his residency back in England, he was converted. After all those years of ministerial study, after being ordained, he came to know the Lord. And of course, we know a similar testimony of his brother John. He was assigned to a parish there in England and almost immediately was forbidden to preach. And they didn't care for his preaching. And so in frustration, he joined his older brother who at that time had already begun an evangelistic ministry, taking the gospel outside the walls of the churches of England into the highways and the hedges and the fields and into the, the mines and, and on the roadsides. And Charles Wesley followed his brother in that enterprise and for many years traversed England, Wales, and Scotland, and even over into Ireland on horseback and there preached the gospel over and over to countless thousands. On one occasion, he preached to 20,000 people in a large sports uh, arena or area there. And then that life became too tough for him physically and he settled down and spent the rest of his time preaching in small Methodist chapels in and around the London area and writing this multitude of hymns. In fact, we hail Isaac Watts as the greatest of the English hymn writers and I would love to these two guys to be in competition for the rest of eternity because all it does is hone even more. Watts came along a little later and wrote 600 hymns. Of course, Wesley had already produced 10 times that many. Listen to the list. It's just in our hymnal. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Come thou long expected Jesus, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Hark the herald angels sing. Christ the Lord is risen today. Hail the day that sees him rise. Arise, my soul, arise. Rejoice, the Lord is king. He comes with clouds descending. And can it be that I should gain Jesus, lover of my soul? Love divine, all loves excelling. Soldiers of Christ, arise. And there's about half a dozen more in our hymnal. 
The Methodist hymnal has about three times that many as you would expect. In fact, this particular song that we're looking at, Hark, the Herald Angels Sing, was uh, written. And by the way, I invite you now to turn in your bulletin to pages 8 and 9. Some of you turn there because that's where you take the sermon notes. Some of you don't, but there you have the text of the, of the verses, the stanzas that are, are in our hymnal. And then you also notice over on page 9 a very remarkable uh, picture. It is a picture of the manuscript of Wesley writing this particular hymn. And notice that he wrote, Hark how the welkin rings. Ah, that needed a little work, didn't it? (laughs) Somebody needs to work on that. Let me tell you who did. And that was a partner of Charles Wesley, George Whitfield. Whitfield had been with Wesley and William Law and others back at Oxford at the Holy Club, and they had all gone on to be outstanding preachers and teachers of the gospel in those days in England. And, West, and, and Whitfield took that particular line and changed it a little bit to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and then he added that Hark the Herald Angels Sing as a refrain. Wesley didn't write refrain, he only wrote the stanzas. And he put in the refrain. So we have the editorial work of, of George Whitfield. Now, it is interesting to notice what that first line says. It says, hark how the welkin rings. How many know what the word welkin means? I didn't know until Mark gave us a little briefing on that this week in our staff meeting. And then he and I talked on the phone a little bit. I didn't, didn't know what the word meant either. It's a good English word. And really what it means, it means everything in creation that's capable of praising the Lord, either through sound or vibration. Vibroacoustic praising of the Lord. The welkin is the creation, the created order, not only the, the people and animals, but the stars that sing. Everything that has a vibration to it can vibrate out a praise to the Lord. And so the first line that he wrote there in the stanza was, Hark how the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. If you can read his writing, which by the way is very good uh, uh, cursive writing there. The King of Kings. And, West, and Whitfield changed that to, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. And we've made it into a Christmas carol. The actual tune that we sing was written by Felix Mendelssohn. I know most of you are familiar with him. He was a a man of um, Jewish extraction, born and lived and died in Germany and converted to Christianity, became a Lutheran, became fascinated with the writings of Johann Sebastian Bach, and in the mid-19th century was one of the most well-known pianists and performers Uh, on the continent, as well as, of course, a composer of many pieces, St. Paul and Elijah and other places. And this particular tune was adapted in 1840 from a theme uh, from the second movement of one of his um, uh, pieces that was written for a man's chorus and a brass ensemble. A men's chorus and a brass ensemble. And that's where the tune that we sing comes from. Well, let's look for just a moment at the text of that particular carol. Because what it does for us, it gives us 
a virtual theology of the person and work of Christ. I'm a little surprised to find we only have these three stanzas printed in our hymnal because there are others, as you can see. I think originally there were ten stanzas. We have nine of them there on this first piece of script uh, before us. But the song is amended by Whitfield says, Hark, it means to, to listen and to pay attention. In fact, to hark and hearken means to go beyond listening to hearing and beyond hearing to obeying. And it tells us to pay attention because it will change our behavior to what the angels are singing. In just a moment, we'll look at that Gloria, that hymn theme that the angels sang. The attention is called to it. And notice all of the great doctrine that's found in this particular, even the stanzas that we have where it says, peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. There's a hostility, there's an enmity between humanity and God. And that has been removed because of the work of Christ. Christ came and in His own person and work, He removed the hostility, the enmity, the great gulf that was fixed between man. And sinners are implored to be reconciled to God. The gospel is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. Christianity is not confined to any particular ethnicity or any particular nation. Christianity is from the very beginning. The first question in the early church was the Catholicity of the Christian faith. Is it universal? Is it for all? Is it for the Gentile? It is to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, to the Gentile. All the nations, all the tongues, all the families of the earth, every nation is to hear and receive the gospel. Christ came not as just the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of Israel and the King of the Jews, but He is also the King of kings and He's the Savior of the world. That ought to speak to us. Christianity is not a Western religion. Christianity is just as Oriental and Eastern as any of the other faiths on planet Earth. It is a faith that comes through the Semitic people, but to all the peoples and all the nations of the world. And we should never confound and confuse Christianity with Western civilization merely and American culture in particular. It goes to every single solitary tongue, tribe, family on earth. With angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. 
Bethlehem was the place that the prophet Micah and all of the rabbinic expectation was that the Messiah would be born at Bethlehem. That's why it was such a remarkable thing when Jesus came in his public ministry as we've seen in the Gospel of John this past fall as we've studied last year the, the things of, uh, uh, of uh, Jesus' ministry that it was always a difficult thing for the religious establishment around the temple to grasp as Jesus was from Nazareth. But yet his birth was according to prophetic prediction in Bethlehem. And then we got the great refrain, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, Christ by highest heavens adored. He's the Lord of glory. And here it talks about his incarnation, the everlasting Lord, the eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms, said Moses to the people. And that's who Jesus is. He is truly the Lord God, co-eternal, co-equal in every way with the Father Himself. Late in time, behold Him come. Isn't it interesting? Very well, long expected Jesus. We've talked about this before, kind of the timetable of the coming of the Lord. 2,000 years after the promise given to Abraham, many more thousands of years after the promise given to Noah, and then, of course, to Adam, even back in history. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, the virgin birth. I love this line, it's one of my favorite. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh, but nevertheless, in him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelling, according to the apostle. Hail the incarnate deity, God come in the flesh. And God come to men, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. We looked at that very thoroughly when we looked at uh, the hymn, uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. God with us. You can see it in the word, the imminence, the nearness. The eminence, the nearness of God with us. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. If there's anything this world needs, it's a Prince of Peace. The hostility with our enemies, with our neighbors, with our associates, the turmoil within our own souls, the wickedness that the prophet Isaiah churns up like the waves of the sea never rest, no end in sight. If there's anything the human heart needs, it is someone to rule, a prince in peace, providing peace, nurturing peace, enforcing peace, and conveying peace. Solace, consolation, placating all of the troubled nature 
of our souls individually, of our homes and our relationships, of our society and of our world. And that's what the angels sang. They sang about peace on earth. That just doesn't seem possible to me. But it is the promise of Christ. That we now have peace with God through His finished work on the cross, whereby He bore our sins and removed all of the evidence against us that indicted us and condemned us to death in hell. And removing all of that by His cross, nailing the offense to the cross and paying the price. And now we're reconciled to God. He brought us that peace. But oh, there's so much more. Peace with God. Peace with ourselves. Internally and individually. In society. And in the nations of the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only true answer to the peace question. It is not found in Geneva, and it is not found in the United Nations. It is found in Christ. When that day comes, that all of mankind beats its swords into plowshares and sits under the vine in a new heaven and a new earth. Then the work of the peacemaker, Christ, is complete. We rejoice in what we see the Lord has already done. It's the gospel. We believe it. It's, it. It is our life. But there's more to come. There's more work He's going to do. He has an advent in which there will be a flaming sword taking vengeance upon those that oppose Him that are the very embodiment of evil itself. And there will be the judgment and the destruction of everything that raises its head against God and His Christ. There's a conquest, there's a victory that will inaugurate an eternal passivity beyond our imagination. Don't you look at the world and long for that? Aren't you tired of the enmity and the slaughter and the terrorism and the crime and just the evil that seems to cover everything. That's what the angels sang. They sang, in Christ, in this little baby, there will be one who will grow up, and he'll be anointed. That's what the word Christ means. He'll be anointed by God to accomplish these things. Oh my goodness, there's so much here. Light and life to all He brings. We've talked about light and life. Christ the light of the world and in Him is life. Risen with healing in His wings. This is one of the most interesting little expressions anywhere in the Bible. 
It comes out of the book of Malachi. And it talks about healing in the wings. Did you know the wings are the, are the hem or the verge or the, are, are the um, um, edge of the garment worn by the priest? That's the wings. Remember the lady that touched the hem of Jesus' garment? And she was healed instantly. Just that touch brings the healing and the restoration to humanity. And then again, his emptying of himself. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Resurrection born to give them second birth, new birth. Now if I can read it, there's a couple of stanzas that's not included. But it is in the text. It's over there. If you could look for it, look and see what we might find in stanza 7 as it's numbered here. They're, the number's slightly different. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Raise the woman's conquering Lord. Bring in him, bruise in him the serpent's head. Ah, reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. The original gospel proclaimed by the Lord himself that he would crush the head of the serpent. One little thing out of our story of the nativity. It struck me. There's a lot there, as you know. We've already looked at it once, and I've had the opportunity this Christmas season to preach in other venues, and I've preached over and over different things out of this, basically these same narratives here in Luke. And uh, talked about the firstborn, the idea of bringing forth the firstborn son, how Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn of Israel. He's the firstborn of many brethren. Talked about the baby, we talked about that, how God always uses a baby when he's ready to do something, when he's ready to bring about a covenant people, he promised a baby, little Isaac, and we went through the baby motif. But there's something that stood out in this that I had never seen before. And that is in the text there it says, there were in the same region shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. This was, of course, in Bethlehem. This is on the edge of the hills of Judea. This is just down one of the main highways from Jerusalem. And for all practical purposes, most scholars tell us that this, these flocks that were being cared for there were the flocks that would eventually make their way down the road just a few miles to Jerusalem to be the temple flocks that would be used and sold there in the temple courts to be used in the sacrifices. Was it not Interesting that the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world was born right there in the environment where all those little lambs were raised that were to be used in the temple sacrifices, coming and identifying and joining right with the flock. Well, that's not what I, that's not what I noticed. Here's what I noticed. <laughs> they were keeping the flock by night. And it just struck me how much God does His work by night. Starting in the creation, when the darkness of the primeval stew was unpenetrated by so much as a flicker, 
God looked at that primeval darkness and spoke into it and said, let there be light. And the spoken word, the word, the logos is Christ, the light of the world speaking into that darkness. It's interesting that when God gave the covenant to Abraham, there was a deep, dark night that fell. And in that deep, dark night, Abraham had cut the covenant and laid the pieces of the animals out. And in the blackness of that night, with bloodshed all around and sacrifice, there was a flaming lantern, a flaming torch that penetrated that darkness to cut the covenant with Abraham that would bring about Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. It was in the darkness of the night that God had instructed His people to take their clothes and suit up and to take the staff and to eat the Passover meal. And it was in the blackness of the night that the death angel came in Egypt and smote the firstborn of the land. And God liberated His people. It is a calling out of darkness into light is the way God works. And it was in the pitch black night of that wintry evening that as these shepherds calmly, sleepily watched their flock, that the Shekinah glory of God lit up the area. The glory shone all around them. It was an intimidating sight. But it was God once again with His brilliance, His power, our God as a consuming fire and a bright light lights up the darkness to show, as it were, in the midst of the night, a dawn, a noonday of hope and joy. And in the singular, one angel, it says, became a gospel preacher. He preached the gospel and the center of his message was a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. He heralded the gospel. That's why we say, listen to that herald angel. What is he saying? He's preaching. He's calling. He's declaring. He's summoning. He's holding forth. He's reaching down. He's pulling us, drawing us to the brilliance of Christ. 